Amen. You know, anytime you're preaching a sermon, it seems like your life uh, kind of like, like you need to hear your own sermon. So it's been, it's been an interesting week for me in that way, and, and you'll see why. Not, not that I want to tell you all my details of my life, but all my dirt, but uh, talking about this stuff is, has, been, has really come up in my life, and I'm, I'm listening to my own words, uh, which I hope the Holy Spirit is really speaking um, through that. But we, get, we began last week, if you remember, uh, speaking about uh, how powerful our feelings and passions and desires and if there's any question as to that power, all you have to do is read uh, or listen to James, the younger brother of Jesus. You, imagine having your oldest brother be Jesus. Like, how do you measure up to that, right? But um, in his New Testament book, which bears his name, chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Mm. And verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 say this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Now, that's just good wisdom right there, right? Let's, let's, give, let's give them that at least, Right? But feelings can be destructive to self and to others. We know that. We, we see that all over the place, right? Like, like waves on the sea, though, they shift and change so fast and so easily. Notice how easily your feelings change for the people around you. Uh, one week you love somebody, the next week you could dance on their grave, right? It just it seems to happen like that. Especially with figureheads and people of authority given their great influence over our lives right? Uh, Pastors, parents, bosses, uh, police, politicians, sorry, teachers, etc. Authority figures can say one small thing, make one small decision, deny us one small desire, uh, make one small mistake, or even just be perceived as doing so, you know, and suddenly the person that we were praising last week could go jump in a lake for all we care, Right? It's how fast things change with us. Feelings are fickle. And they're not necessarily truth-based. Even if it feels like it's true, right? True love, though, true love powers through the ups and downs of our feelings, staying committed in relationship with one another, because godly love isn't just a feeling. It is a decision. That's something you have to remember in many situations, right? If you're married, you know this all too well. If you're married, you have an intimate connection with James chapter 4. <laughs> right? All the married people laugh, right? Because like authority figures, how we feel about our spouse is extremely important. They have great influence over us. When we give per, a peop, persons a, a power over us, like we do in our wedding vows, they elicit strong feelings in us. In marital conflicts, we'll often hear somebody say, I can't even remember what we were fighting about, right? Since the conflict itself isn't really the issue, it's the underlying feelings which drive the conflict. 
Oftentimes in a marriage, uh, a spouse will do something as simple as leaving their clothes on the floor of their bedroom, which I never do because I love my wife so much. But let's say a husband does do this, and it upsets his wife enormously to the point of consistent major fights. The fight always begins and ends the same way, spiraling out of control until they walk away from each other in a huff and they're not speaking for a time, all over a few socks on the floor. Like, what's her problem? Right? (laughs) Getting a peek into my life, right? But it's not just about the socks, is it? That's not it. It's not really it. It's the underlying feeling. How does the wife feel at that moment? If she's honest, she might confess it makes her feel unloved. It makes her feel disrespected. It makes her feel like he doesn't value her work. Once or twice isn't the issue. It's the ongoing consistency of the problem, right? The ongoing consisting of, the ongoing message, he doesn't love me enough to value me in this way. He cares more about himself than for me. And that message producing that feeling, coupled with a myriad of all smaller, you know, similar things, produces a growing fear in the wife in the form of the question, does he really love me? What if he doesn't love me? What are we going to do with this life that we've built together? With all these kids, (laughs) right? And husband, seeing her anger and her ongoing criticism of him, feels disrespected. The same sense of fear overtakes him since he believes that over time she doesn't really respect him. She doesn't really love him. She doesn't really value how much he does in life or how busy he is to worry about a few socks on the floor. So the same question arises in his mind. She must not love me. It's all about what she wants. She cares more about the socks on the floor than she does about my heart. Focusing simply on the conflict, the two of them grow apart emotionally. The good feeling they had towards each other that they promised on their wedding day of, you know, for better or for worse, seems far away and unattainable in those moments. Bad feelings of bitterness grow in the fertile soil of fear, watered by a few socks on the carpet, and it's a familiar cycle to all of us. Not just in marriage, but in all relationships. But this is one which can lead to the death of a marriage, these little things. You think I exaggerate? I don't. Everyone ends up sitting across the table from the lawyer and their spouse saying, I can't remember what the fight was about, but they obviously don't love me anymore. Loving feelings interrupted by simplistic actions, extrapolated by the fear that we're living in, buried under disdain, and the two people are set at odds with one another. Two people that should be committed to one another. Ephesians 6.12. We've read this many times. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, (laughs) but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is at work in your relationships. 
Our battle in very practical ways is for the mind, it is for our thinking, it is for truth, it is for love and godly directives to reign in us, in our relationships together. And we don't always do that well. It's not for bitterness and fear and anger. There are, and this is your pastor telling you this and remember it, there are spiritual forces which seek to manipulate your feelings towards each other breaking down relationships, derailing and diverting our focus on the kingdom work that God calls us to. We are, are, though, well-equipped when we've been immersed in the Word of God. We've enabled it to come to mind uh, when we're in these difficult moments, when we're immersed in it, when we're in tune with the Holy Spirit who whispers in our ear, they're not the enemy. Look closer. Look closer. So what if husband and wife practice these godly principles, right? Taking their thoughts captive to Christ in order to break the cycle by getting to the feelings underneath instead of bending the ear of close friends and, you know, sort of slandering their spouse without really understanding their heart. What if they could get to the root of the issue? Proverbs 10.18 says, He who conceals his hatred has lying lips. And whoever spreads slander is a fool. So bottling up your anger isn't the answer, it seems, that Scripture would teach. Being passive-aggressive doesn't work. Letting it fester fails us. Talking badly about someone never really helps. What if they could, in the middle of the fight, stop and just say to each other, well, you know, wait, this is just adding more hurt. I love you. I love you. I don't want to be at odds with you. I'm just scared. My fear leads me towards anger. And I know you love me too. I know you love me. So it's, it's just that when you do this, it, it communicates to me that you don't love me. Now, that's cooking with gas, Right? That's, that's something we can work with. No one can argue those words because they melt our hearts, don't they? It's honest. It's not concealing our anger. It's not hiding our feelings. It's letting anger out in a healthy, passionate, good way. What if that good statement then followed up with this? I'm sorry. No matter whether you're sorry or not. Right, Maddie? Maddie said this yesterday. doesn't matter if you're sorry or not. Or, well, I forget what you said. It was wise, though. Anyway. But <laughs> you value more the relationship more when, you, when you're willing to apologize, right? That's what, something like that. Very smart girl. Um, but what if you said, I'm sorry, you know, and I, I, I need to be more patient. I need to be more thoughtful. I, and I promise from here on out, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm sorry that I haven't acted in a loving way lately. Then you give them a hug and a kiss. That's a marriage that's going to go someplace. That's a relationship that can last, right? And you notice right then that the cycle has not been stopped. Or the cycle's been stopped, but nothing's been negotiated, right? The cycle has been stopped, but nothing's been negotiated, right? It's, it, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't need to be. The, the, the conflict doesn't need to be addressed. It's focused on the underlying emotion, not the behavior. 
The initial conflict doesn't need to be addressed head on since the underlying feelings have been communicated. That's a difference. And that is the best case scenario for a husband to want to act more thoughtfully by picking up his socks. And when he forgets and he leaves a sock on the floor, wife is a lot more patient after that since it's not such a life and death issue with her any longer. Because love has been reaffirmed through divine obedience and allowing God to work even further. The real need is to remove the cause, the underlying feelings, and not just address the effect, the conflict. And if you, if you don't do it that way, it will resurface over and over and over again. What if they didn't take that route? What if they didn't go down that road? Wife gets more naggingly proficient, you know, and husband succumbs because <clears throat> he's tired of hearing it, and he picks up the socks for the rest of his life, right? What does she feel? She feels superiority and pride, right? She thinks she's won the argument, but she's actually sacrificed the relationship. And each time that husband bends over to pick up that sock, it reinforces his bitterness. And he too has sacrificed the relationship because he's hid his anger. He's hid his true feelings. He hasn't worked it through. But it could be different. Love could be replanted to grow and flourish and to change behavior, right? Instead of nagging, there could be words of, of affirmation. Instead of thoughtful, thoughtless acts, there could be acts of loving service. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because of what? You don't ask God. Now notice he doesn't say you don't have because you don't argue hard enough or or negotiate well enough or nag strongly enough or assert your power enough. The conflict's not addressed. It's because you don't ask God. You're asking the wrong person. You're going to the wrong place for satisfaction. What we feel we want or desire is sometimes out of line in us, or it's only the surface thing producing and reinforcing negative feelings within us towards somebody else. What James is saying is to ask God is to let Him realign your feelings, your desires, and your passions with His in these situations. To get to what's really important, the relationship. My desire is to be free to do what I want, to leave my socks willy-nilly all over the floor whenever I want. But God wants to change my desires to be more loving of my lifelong partner, which is my wife, to pick up my socks. What we really want is connection, right? We want love. We want relationship. And when we have that, when that is solid, socks on the floor don't matter as much to the wife. And, and picking them up is, is suddenly a little bit more important to the husband, isn't it? James continues to say, when you ask, you don't receive. Because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. There is never growth without tension. Right? 
God seems to allow us to live in relational tension with one another to spur on growth in us. Christianity is a communal thing. We have to learn to love beyond our own feelings, beyond our own desires, beyond our own passions. We have to learn to appreciate others and to drive towards God's perfect will on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6.10. The Lord's Prayer. Remember that. Our attention to life has to get beyond spending what we get on our own pleasures. It's not all about us. God sets his standards pretty high. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 48, he says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Ouch. That said, at the end of the passage, concerning having love for your enemies, not just your spouse or your friend or your children or your parents or whatever, but your enemies. Which for the Christian means that this extends beyond family, beyond friends, beyond those people that are close to us, and out to everyone we encounter. So the Christian doesn't even have the luxury of living in racism or hatred or anything like that. We don't have that luxury. Can we get angry at people? Yes, we can. It's not, it's not bad to get angry at somebody. But it matters what we do with it. And we don't always do well with it. Can we have difficult feelings and relationships with one another? Yes, but they must be subordinate to Christ and measured against truth. Think about how you think, right? And that teaching continues, I think, in 1 John chapter 4. It says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. So this is how we do it, he says. This is how we live in love. In this world, we are like Jesus. That's the answer. There is no fear in love. Now, it seems to be that the opposite of, of, of love is not necessarily hatred, but fear. Fear leads to hatred. The base emotion usually is fear. When we're living out of fear, we're hurting everybody around us right? There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. I have nothing to worry about. I'm secure in Christ, right? Be perfect, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have not seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Or whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Now that should make us stop and think whenever we find ourselves in conflict with another. And perfection isn't really about being morally perfect in our own strength in all situations. That's not really what he's calling us to there. It has to do more with reacting in love. Or maybe better said, reacting like Jesus. Of not living in fear, but living in trust and living in love. Realizing and owning Christ's righteousness upon us. And reacting in love, reflecting the character of God, is to react perfectly. Paul says it this way in Romans 13, 14. He says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Put him on, right? 
And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Ephesians 4 says it this way, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, to take off that old sinful, selfish, prideful self, right? Which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Remember Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? And to put on the new self, the righteousness of Christ created to be like God in, the, in, the righteous, in true righteousness and holiness, right? And in Colossians 3, it also says it this way, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Paul, I mean, the scriptures and Paul are pretty like consistent across the board with this message. And you see how it's all about Christ's righteousness transforming how we think and how we feel and where these, all, these things all lead us. Scripture is wholly practical and a whole lot cheaper than counseling. It really is. If you'll let it work. We're able to love others perfectly. Sorry for all you counselors. I don't want to bite into your business. But... But we're able to love others perfectly, spouse or otherwise, only because such great love has been lavished on us perfectly. And there's, that's the Christian advantage. And that, that's what takes this beyond good psychology and into the realm of the Spirit. We have no excuse not to love sacrificially given that we have a loving, sacrificial God who's revealed Himself in His Word and who's, who's left us with the Holy Spirit to guide us and empower us in this whole endeavor. Remember 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has given everything that we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. How all this stuff works together in us. Feelings are really important. They're important. They're great servants, but they're terrible masters, right? They're central to life. We feel all the time, don't we? We've got to be responsible with them, though. There's no need to live as victims to our own feelings. Feelings in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad or wrong, But when they're not directed well or they're not subordinate to Jesus, they become destructive. Some of us live lives that look more like the floor of the bedroom of the husband with all of our feelings scattered in disarray all over the place and no order to them whatsoever. And like Proverbs 10.18 says, he who conceals his his hatred has lying lips. We learn that repression or denial of harsh feelings isn't the answer. Being honest about them, allowing the spiritual formation process to replace or to reorder them is the healthy way to do it, to walk in it. We can't chase our feelings just for the sake of having feelings. For instance, the person focusing their whole life on being loved or being in love you know, we'll always be chasing that feeling and they'll not be able to have loving relationships. The person who wants peace so badly that they're unwilling to confront evil or to do what is right when, it, when it'll bring attention into their life will never be able to find peacefulness. 
you just overlook bad behavior all the time in your relationships with each other, you won't be, be at peace. That's not peace. Peace isn't the absence of tension. It's the presence of Christ within it. MLK said, uh, the peace which Paul spoke of is a calmness of soul amid terrors of trouble. We'll always have to address conditions we find ourselves in, whether good or bad, and, but we have to let our feelings take care of themselves, knowing that Christ walks with us in this, that he's doing something in us. And I believe Jesus says that in Matthew 6.33 when he says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. He will order your life. He will take care of it. And we remember what Paul said in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We should never seek to cherish or protect or manipulate feelings in ourselves and others except when those feelings become so overwhelming that they threaten to take over everything. That's when we utilize prayer, we utilize medication, we utilize counseling to get a handle on them. There you go, counselors. You got your little bone in. They've gone too far. Intervention is needed, and sometimes that is what is needed. I had a friend in Indonesia who was a rock-solid Christian, great person. She was wonderful. She would gotten spiritually attacked, though, uh, there in Indonesia at such, to such a great degree and for so long that it brought about a deep depression in her that we, could just, we just couldn't get her, get her out of it. A doctor finally medicated her, and she considered that to be spiritual in- intervention, and it was. I considered it the same thing. It cleared her mind enough to get her to think straight, and she eventually didn't need the medication any longer, and she was back to life as normal. She was attacked really strongly. Feelings are slippery things. They really are. They can be overpowering. They can be dangerous. They can spread into all areas of our lives. It's hard to reason with someone who's allowed certain feelings to take them over, right? They'll defend them at all costs beyond rationality. And about that person, we often say, there's no reasoning with them. I can't get through. I can't get through. We've said in past sermons that thoughts generate feelings. That what we focus our minds on generate feelings in us. And if we allow certain thoughts to obsess us, then we'll be enslaved to those thoughts, we'll be enslaved to those feelings, and we'll be blinded towards truth. We may see this in people who have experienced the trauma at the hands of another person, or either truly or even just perceived And they focus on that and they focus on that and they brood on it until it permeates every aspect of their being. And in the end, you can even see it in their countenance, in how they look and how they carry themselves physically. It might even have physical uh, manifestations on them. Hebrews 12.15 calls that a root of bitterness. And it is why Scripture is so clear that forgiveness is very, very important in life. Because it can be a prison. This can even happen in whole groups of people. You know, group think, where they view another person with, or another people group with disdain. We, we've seen it in history in the Nazi party. We see it in North Korea, how they view everybody else you know, around them. Uh, we see it in the white supremacy movement. 
We even see it in other social and political groups in our country right now. They just seem to be at odds with each other and they can't talk because they've got feelings towards each other. They can't get past it. We need to be practiced in in the art of thinking about how we think. Like David, to step back from our own emotion, understanding we might be wrong. (laughs) Right? Often our own feeling of self-righteousness in some situation is a clear sign that we might be off. We We may not be right. Remembering you can be all right in your summarization of the details of a situation, but you can be all wrong in how you react to it, in your feelings about it. Thoreau noted, the mass of men live lives of quiet desperation. Quiet desperation, right? That's a great quote. Allowing ourselves to be carried away by feeling, allowing ourselves to be obsessed with this stuff without limiting and bringing them under the Lordship of Christ is to bring about a deadness to our soul. Quiet desperation. Nobody wants to live like that. We see this in addictions where the person's given themselves totally over to that feeling, that chasing of that feeling, and putting it in the place of Christ in their life over others and over their, even their personal safety. And the terrible tragedy is they may even see that in themselves. They may even admit it. They may even see the prison that they're in, but, they, but they don't, they're not able to see a way out. Add to that that they have, they've developed physical triggers with, with things which make it even more difficult to get out from underneath it. And grace and compassion is needed in these cases to a great degree. One of the greatest tragedies in modern life is that we've lost the practices of spiritual formation, which this whole series is about. People are overwhelmed, they're overstimulated, and they're relationally disconnected. And we're all left only to make our decisions based on how we feel, right? We've lost our sense of community, although we spout that word left and right. We don't really have community. We no longer have the traditions or the practices of faith it takes to govern life wisely and well. We really don't. I'd like to get us there even more. I think we're doing a good job at it, but I'd like to go even farther with that. Feelings aren't our will. But we, and, they, and they shouldn't be confused with our will. But we act as if that's so in America right now. Right? Feelings, again, need to come under the lordship and the direction of Christ to have healthy self-control, which is the God-empowered ability to do that thing that is best in a situation even when you don't feel like it. That's self-control. In a society, though, of individuals where character is seriously lacking, which is our country right now, self-control isn't extolled. Nor is it practiced almost at all. And it is the enemy of the almighty feeling. And that's what we're facing. Feeling will almost always subvert good choices for your life. In that kind of a situation. Solid, disciplined, spiritual formation in in Christ is the mongoose. This is what Dallas Willard says. I love this quote, is the mongoose which defeats the cobra of feeling. You've ever seen a mongoose fight a cobra? It's giant, like, 20-foot-long cobra, and this little tiny mongoose will just, like, kill it. It's awesome. 
Go look that up on YouTube, right? But you know, you look deeply into this subject of feelings and it can be overwhelming for us, right? Especially if we've allowed it to go out of control. But remember, God is able and will, it's a promise, able and will continue the good work in you until it is completed, right? Remember that promise, Philippians 1.6. We are in a spiritual battle. Make no mistake about that. We are. Be prayerful privately and corporately concerning your feelings. Ask for protection over your feelings. Bind the power of evil spiritual forces in the name of Christ, which would seek to manipulate your feelings. Ask for God's divine intervention in your feelings. Communicate your commitment to partnering with Him, even in your feelings. Ask Him to wake you up spiritually, to have eyes to see and ears to hear His wisdom about your feelings. Foster the vision of a transformed life in Christ concerning your feelings. Fan into flame the intention to follow Jesus even in how you feel. Utilize the means of spiritual formation to walk with Him in order to order your feelings underneath him. I want to lead us a little bit this morning in in an imaginative prayer exercise. um, And and I want to renounce those powers that would seek to bring confusion or unbelief in our hearts and our lives. What if a prayer person, whoever that is, they can come on up front and when we get done, you can take over. But I want to pray about this for a few minutes. So why don't we bow our heads and go to prayer and uh, there might be some... uh, quiet moments here and some uh, we'll just keep going Holy Spirit uh, right now we do renounce any spiritual power any spiritual force those powers those principalities that you speak of in scripture that would seek to destroy or undermine our feelings to manipulate our feelings to destroy the relationships that we're involved with, to destroy the kingdom work that we are called to do. We renounce all of those things. We do invoke the blood of Christ over our lives, over our feelings. We pray that you would give us hearts of belief and trust. That you would undo confusion and you would bring clarity. Order our hearts and our minds towards your glory and towards your kingdom work. Staying in this prayerful posture, I want you to just kind of pray on your own. Let's meditate with the Holy Spirit just for a moment. Let's, let's ask Him to guide us in taking off that old self and putting on the new self. If you could imagine sort of taking that off in your mind's eye and then putting on Christ, just take a moment and do that.
take a moment to allow him to define one feeling that you'd like to bring under his control in your life that, or that he would like to bring under control for you. Are you living fearfully? Are you living in anger? Are you living in bitterness or unforgiveness? Do you have hatred in your heart? Whatever it is, allow him to identify that feeling. Now, using your imagination in in sort of this prayerful posture, let's go to the cross with that. Imagine yourself carrying that feeling, that addiction or whatever it is to the cross and laying it at the foot of the cross. Imagine the blood of Christ washing over it. Imagine the Holy Spirit picking it up and nailing it to the cross. Imagine as he does that, that he is crucifying the power and the control that those feelings have over you. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you did not leave us alone. That you did not leave us to fend for ourselves. We thank you that you have the power to take these things from us and to crucify them, to reorder them, and to let us walk away in a more healthy posture. We thank you that you have the power to extract the power that it has over us. You can take that away from us. We thank you that you have the power to bring order to our hearts and our minds in these areas, even when we've never felt possible, it possible to be able to do so. And we ask that you would speak loudly in this coming week in how we need to respond to you, how we need to walk with you more intimately as we think about these things even more.